Life, a podcast of the cinema. Welcome to episode 600. Isn't that weird? Very weird. I mean, I mean, it's not weird. It's just, it's we've been doing this podcast for 12 years. So yeah. It was they nevi- do add up. It was inevitable <laughs> that we would hit episode uh, number 600. But, I'm, you know, that's kind of like a, it's kind of, Episode number 600 is kind of like your 37th birthday and nobody cares. Uh, right? I don't You need to get to 1,000. I suppose. The 500 is a milestone. The 750, 1, is a milestone. I think, would be. 666 will obviously be a, a milestone. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm trying to think like, like, you know, the 600th issue of Action Comics, I think sort of merits a... A big cover and a double size or whatever, but it's not the same. You're right. It's... My name's Dave White, by the way. I'm, I'm Alonzo Duralde. You're Alonzo Duralde. I'm a film critic for The Wrap. You are also a film critic of The Wrap. Yes. You are the main film critic of The Wrap. You are the reviews editor at The Wrap. You do other podcasts. You'll you'll say their names later. Mm-hmm. Um, I was digging up the letters that you sent. Yes. The three letters. And... I got to say, the most reliable, dumb thing every day in my inbox is the the email blast from Allure magazine. <laughs> like now it, I know why you are always so alluring. It delights me every day because, all right, so the, 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 the deal is this. I subscribe to Vogue. Yes. Now, I'm a... 58-year-old, 270-pound man. But you know what's great? Fashion. Yes. It's fun. I like to read about it. I've read Vogue magazine for well, my whole life. It is a, it's been a fascinating magazine uh, for me since I was young. And... But God help me, it's a Condé Nast publication, and here's what they do to you when you subscribe to something. I get the print issue of Vogue in the mail once a month. Yes. And um, the... Uh, the <laughs> they tag on, they tack on these other magazines for you. Like, I started subscribing to Vogue, and suddenly... Allure started showing up also in the mailbox. I get yes. the print issue of Allure sent to me now. I never asked for it. I don't pay for it. It's just, and it's a skinny little magazine. It used to, remember when it used to be big? Oh, yeah. Like a big deal kind of magazine. And now. Back when it was fighting for newsstand space with Mirabella. It's, yeah. It is, I don't know who reads it. Every issue is like advertorial for makeup. And I think that must be the reason it still exists. Yeah, clearly. Um, but the email blast they send out. Also, I, I, I flip through it just to see, you know, what makeup tips do they have for me? <laughs> honestly, honestly, what I look for, what I look at it for is like, what's the latest in the eye gels? <laughs> uh, you do love an eye gel. I do. I want to know about those. Because I got bags. <laughs> I got eye bags. Um, I, I'm a 58 year old, 270 pound man. <laughs> eye bags. I, but I, I, the okay. So here's today's email blast. It says, "You click through, 
It says, did Haley Bieber just invent Librarian Corps? Oh, good Lord. Well, you click through, and the, uh, the article says, did Haley Bieber and her chunky black glasses just invent Librarian Corps? And the answer is, no. Librarians invented Librarian No Corps. allure. <laughs> if such a thing exists. Core, core as a word, as, an, as, a, as, a, as suffix. a suffix, um, came along uh, in the 80s as a, as a you know, hardcore uh, was, the, was what they called, you know, the, the incredibly fast punk rock that developed in the early 80s. Right. Um, and then as... Also the, the pornography, of course. As the decades went on, but it, it, it gained traction in the world of music as yes. a, this core, that Norm core. core and, and then eventually things related to fashion, norm core, what you just right. referenced. Um, but you know, do you know, do you know where library, I'm going to just assert librarian core started with the American independent indie rock band Tsunami because Jenny Toomey and the other woman in the band whose name I cannot remember right now and I'm very sorry for that. Uh, they dressed like librarians on stage. <laughs> like they had, you know, uh, sort of stereotypically prim attire, but they were playing, you know, noisy music. And I say it was Tsunami, not Haley Bieber. I'm going to say it's Catherine think... Hepburn as Bunny Watson in Desk Well, okay, let's if you want to go all the way back. <laughs> you want to go all the way back. You want to talk about the old school. Yeah. Yeah. Kate Hepburn as Bunny Watson in Desk Set. That's Librarian Corps. Yeah. Stayed till 10 p.m. last night. That's right. She was up this morning for a meeting at IBM to see the new electronic brain. <laughs> she and stopped she went, at Bonwitz. She stopped at Bonwitz. <laughs> Don't you dare tell her she's late for work. <laughs> Y'all, if you haven't seen Desk Set yet, <laughs> if we've tried to tell you anything over the course of 600 episodes, it's watch Desk Set. Watch Desk Set. Especially at this most hallowed time at of the, year. At the, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the most Desk Set time of the year. Yes. Um, watching Desk Set last week made me want to rewatch The Apartment and uh, because the the, del- the other movie with the big office holiday, the delightful party. office party scene in desk set uh, gives way to the dark and grim one the from du- the apartment. <laughs> yes, so uh, that's definitely on my to-do oh, yeah. list for the weekend. Drunk executives aren't that cute. <laughs> not in the apartment. They're not. <laughs> no, no. Um, a lot of dum dums. Uh, Talking this week. Mm. Specifically, uh, film Twitter dum-dums uh, and Fox News dum-dums. I was going to say, and let's not leave out Sean Hannity. Fox News dum-dums. They have taken our uh, our personal friend and film critic president, <laughs> Manola Darkest. Whom we ideally will have all back on in January. That's the hope. I hope as we do every year. I hope she's available. Yes. Um, to talk about the year just passed. They posted her, they posted her uh, top ten list on. It was Sean Hannity, yeah, was it, or yeah. or the Ron other Hannity. one, not Tucker Carlson? It was Sean Hannity. It was Hannity, yeah. Okay. More antics from the woke left yes. is what. Like one person committed one antic. Yeah, and, and, and made a, li- a top she, she ten. She did list her of, job. Made a list of top ten movies that many people had never heard of. Yes. How, how dare she? 
And so again, they woke just means I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like socialism is kind of the same word for them. It's like, oh, anchovies on pizza. How woke. <laughs> no, it's just you don't like it. That's all. <laughs> well, in this case, it's that so they don't like it and they don't know it. Of course. You know? Well, yeah, it's that implication of like, you're talking about something that I don't know about. Stop trying to make me feel stupid. <laughs> That's not how this works. Pretty much. Yeah. Um yeah, but there was even there was a, a film on the list where you were like, "Wait, I don't know that one." And yeah, I, was, I had to ask. Um, it's a did film. I did I feel attacked? No, no. Uh, she had put uh, expedition content on on her list. Uh, a Cinema Guild release, kind of experimental film. It consists uh, largely of a of an all black screen. Oh, it is more audio than kind of most anything else. So, like Derek Jarman's Blue. Uh, yeah. And um, Derek Jarman's early 90s uh, film, 93? Uh, yeah. yeah, around yeah. then. It was after he had pretty much lost his, his eyesight. Sight. And that was the point yeah. of the movie. Um, so, uh, but I, I didn't get a chance to see uh, Expedition content because it played one night here in Los Angeles uh, with the Acropolis sort of rotating screening series. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it, you know... Cinema Guild distributed distributed this film. It's not like it was undistributed, but it was one of those films where you have to go on the night that it's playing one time right. at the museum and then b- goodbye. Um, and I, I, I made note of it at the beginning of the year thinking, oh, I really want to see that. I can't go to this thing. It'll just kill my legs. And um, it still is not streaming. It still is not on physical media so I'm just sort of like waiting for it to show up because that is absolutely my kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) and when I saw her list I thought oh you might be the only person who's going to put that on your top 10 I'm I'm still stoked to see it and there are a couple of of her choices that I'm sure will be at or near my top 10 yes so it's like fine come get me right-wing media whatever (laughs) but that's the thing (laughs) Ultimately, when film critics post their end-of-the-year lists, a lot of people, the general response is, I've never heard of this. Yeah. Quite often. Unless those film critics are deeply involved in, you know, uh, mainstream... Hollywood blockbusters. Multiplex sort of, you know, offerings. And there's a a section of the film critic world that is exactly that. And that's... If those are the people who you like to read and those are the people you trust, then by all means, follow them and and pay attention to their lists. And I don't even have to say this because everyone already does. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know, I don't, I don't ever get this though. Like, no. I mean, I was thinking about it, like my top 10 last year included the movie Limbo, which mm-hmm. was released by Focus Features, but very few people saw it. Yeah. You know, my list included Petite Maman, which is on Manola's list for this year. Well, it's because it opened in, the, it had its official opening in 2022. 2021. It, oh, 22. Yeah, right. Yes. It got a qualifying oh, run right. in, the, in Los Angeles and New York yes. in 2021. But I've never thought about that. I've always been sort of a mixed I've always had mixed feelings about that. Like, do if I'm gonna make a list, if someone is paying me to make a list, I'm gonna make the list about 
about films that I saw. I feel like and if... I know that in the next following year, if it gets released in January or right. February or mm-hmm. March, a lot of people might see it and put it on their next year-end list, yeah. and that's fine. It ultimately doesn't matter at all. This is true, but I do I do feel like, especially you know, for the rap, if it got if if it is it is if it is an awards qualifier for this year, if it you know had its even if it's just a one week run, yeah, then it counts. Yeah. And and I had actually reviewed Petit Maman out of. I guess Berlin, yeah. remotely mm-hmm. uh, in in twenty twenty one. Yep. Actually, maybe in twenty twenty even. Yeah. Anyway, but so I, I for me it, it it made sense to put it on there. But yeah, um, I, I you know I, I've I've looked back at my list and it's a mix of things. I mean, last year's list also had you know, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar on it. You know, uh, but which is but, fantastic. But I I never sit down and think, what have people seen? And right. conversely, I don't also, you know, top I don't gun. ten times. Top I, gun. I I don't do the ten thing. Top guns. I don't do the thing that certain quarters will accuse critics of. Is I don't sit there and go, "What has no one seen?" <laughs> That's not how it works. Well, you know, sometimes it is a thing where, you know, let's go back to expedition content. Mm-hmm. Who got to see that movie? Well, sure, it played. I went to Cinema Guild's site today to see if they had it streaming yet or on a, you know, uh, physical media copy yet. Uh-huh. They do not. No. And and I looked at their play dates because it, it, it played in various cities throughout 2022. Mm-hmm. Like one night here, two nights there, um, you know, two nights at Film Forum. No, 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 no. Two nights at like Anthology Film Archives, Archives. In, in New York. <clears throat> uh, again, one night here in Los Angeles, a smattering of other cities where yeah. that kind of film can reliably draw some kind of audience for its one-time thing. And people who are dedicated to looking for that kind of film and making sure they know that it's coming, what it is when it arrives, how, you know, they've made a plan to go see it. You or don't if accidentally they pay, walk into that film. Or if they pay close attention to the calendar of the venue that is showing it. Right. Their local art house, their local museum, whatever it is, where they know that these movies are going to come in and come. And, you know, they, we're not talking films that get like your traditional at least one week run with showtimes all day. It's like... Yeah. One night, two nights, the seven o'clock show, and that's it. I want, I routinely go to the Cinema Guild site. I routinely go to the Grasshopper site because I want to know what's coming. Stake out my plan of how I might get to see it if it's a one night deal at the Hammer or whatever, right. <clears throat> or, or with Acropolis, you know, wherever they happen to have a screening that night. That's what I do because those those two distributors specifically, they put films into the world that I really want to see. If y'all don't want to see those kinds of films, then I guess you're getting a snack when we talk about them here on this podcast <laughs> or maybe the people who listen to this podcast are equally involved in that kind of thing. I, I hear from y'all sometimes yeah. that you did go watch this stuff. Or just that you, you like hearing us talk about them even if you think you'll probably never Maybe you'll never get to see it. them. Maybe you put it on your list. The, uh, Everyone the, should be making a list the other, really, the other of what they want to see, <laughs> posting it on their refrigerator <laughs> next to the list of what's in the freezer anyway. You know, the other quarter being obnoxious about Manola's list was apparently the everything everywhere all at once stands. Yes, who have uh, turned into um, well, not a, a riled up uh, uh, not on the whole, of, of but there is there is <laughs> apparently a sliver of the everything everywhere all at once fans 
who are behaving as though Zack Snyder directed it. And yes, that's that's the weird thing, right? Like, where did where did that? How did when did that happen? Well, I it, it was I was color me shocked. I would not have predicted that that would be a movie that kind of engendered that sort of intense fanboyism. But uh, one of the Daniels took to Twitter to basically said, "Knock say, it off, knock it off." <laughs> like it's ridiculous, and also it violates the spirit of what this movie's even about. Yeah. So like you are missing the point if you're going to behave like this. But, you know, it, we saw this last week with the sight and sound list. People lose their minds about this stuff <laughs> as though these lists somehow were empirical. And, you know, and, and, and you know, you either agree with this or you're wrong. Yes. And if you're wrong, you're dumb. I mean, if you disagree with me, you are wrong and dumb. But, like, hardly. I think, I, and I think everyone understands that. Really. Uh, I have entered into this relationship with the very clear idea that that is not the case. But like, I, I On hate... your deathbed, though. <laughs> oh, right. On your you deathbed. You were right about I know, everything. I know that your final words to me will be, my darling, my love, my husband, Dave, David Leland White. Yes, I will. It's that important. I'll use David all three Leland names. David Leland White, all three of my names. You'll call me David. And you will say... You were always right, especially about Beautrevai. <laughs> I hate writing lists because I, I just I don't I think they they defeat the purpose of what we're trying to do here. We're not having a conversation. It's like I hate I hate having to do numerical rankings because people get so obsessed with that. <laughs> oh, you gave a higher score to this rom com that you gave an eight to than to this, you know art house film you gave a seven to him like well it's not the same scale it all makes me nuts so just like it's we're at the time of year where people are doing their lists read them if it inspires you to go see something great if they agree with you great if they disagree with you also great none of this means anything let it go talking about art talking about culture is i think it's really valuable yes but uh Quantifying but it, however, quantifying it really bums me out, um, and and that is not to say that I don't love to read other film critics' uh, year-end lists, sure. even, even if they are uh, uh, ranking them. I don't mind that. I don't care if it's out in the world happening. Just please don't make me do it. I would like I would like instead to just throw out my titles at the end of the year on like. Twitter or Instagram or wherever, Facebook, I don't know. And this then program. And then, and then on this show, have the conversation with our friends who are other film critics who come in in January and sit around this table and and talk. We all have a nice chat. Yes. It's great. I like it. Um, we have six films to talk about today. Oh, my God. Um, And... We're going to start with the new ones. Yes. Because we have finally hit that time of the year when the screener DVDs and links show up. And all the things that I missed because of my terrible arthritic hips, I can now watch them. I watched Tar this afternoon. I set aside a luxurious three hours. <laughs> To sit down with it and oh, watch Lydia, it. Oh, Lydia. Oh, Lydia. Oh, Lydia. Have you met Lydia? 
We'll get to the catch-up stuff at the end of the show. Uh, I want to talk about the new things first. Yes. And one new thing that opens this week is the new documentary by Laura Poitras. Yes. Called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Is it All the Beauty and the Bloodshed or yes. All the Beauty and Bloodshed? All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Which was on Manola Darks' top, top 10 on Manola's top 10. So... If you've ever been, uh, if you've ever had surgery, when you go home, they will prescribe you some kind of pain medication. I don't, I don't, I had a hernia surgery in 2009, and I know they gave me some kind of pain medicine for after the fact, and Mm -hmm. I think I remember taking one. I don't remember uh, which one it was. Maybe Vicodin? Is that an opioid? I don't know if it's an opioid. It is a painkiller. Anyway, it's a painkiller. And I remember thinking, well, I don't really feel like woozy or high. or I don't feel like I'm having fun on this. I feel like it's maybe just doing its job. I was going to say, I I took Vicodin after oral surgery once, and it was just like, oh, okay, so this is a painkiller that is killing pain. (laughs) I am not a lady of the canyon all of a sudden. I, um, and then that's it. Earlier this summer, when I got diagnosed with hip arthritis, mm-hmm. the the doctor in physical medicine, she asked me, how do you feel about painkillers? And I said, could we not do that? Because they frightened me. Like, I'm afraid of them. I've heard so many crazy stories about people who are like, yeah, I just had surgery. and I've had this kind of pain, and they gave me this. And then I was like... In the gutter somewhere, yeah. like three months Popping later. them like Tic Tacs. And I I hear those stories and I think, no, 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 no. Maybe the pain is something I need to uh, uh, understand. Maybe the pain, maybe it's my body talking to me, telling me something about, I don't know. I'm, I don't want to get goop about it, but like it's, I'd rather feel the pain than... And, and, and I'm not saying that everyone should do this because some people are in, in such extreme excruciating. Uh, physical, excruciating pain that they need something. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, there's a book that came out in 2020, 2021 by uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, who's a, a staff reporter at The New Yorker. Uh, the book is called Empire of Pain, and it is about... The Sackler family. The Sackler family are the people who, do they own Purdue? They own Purdue Pharmaceuticals. They own Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And Purdue Pharmaceuticals are the people who... uh, Gave the world OxyContin. OxyContin. Now, the book is about how this family uh, made extreme profits from a drug that was documented to be highly addictive and and they also made extreme profits by you know sort of pushing doctors to prescribe it in these weird like business transactions mm. you know um which are i mean to some extent not uncommon i mean like right. so much of pharma they spend so much money on but you'll notice every every ruler pen and like thing from my childhood has a drug name on it like yeah, growing yeah. up my father was a surgeon every notepad by the phone every yeah. 
pen we had had the name of some thing on right. it. And so, because um, they would just send those things to the office. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for decades now, uh, we haven't even got to the movie yet. No. For decades now, corporate domination of the United States. Yeah. And that is what, and that is what has happened. You know, we are no longer really, I think, governed by a government. We are governed by corporations yeah. who influence the government in ways that are shocking and should be dismantled. I think Citizens United was kind of the final nail yeah. on that one. <clears throat> Corporate domination of the United States has like vivisected and vultured the public institutions that we've had. And, and those public institutions have always been on shaky ground because of it. We started from a position, I think, the United States, of even less of a government safety net and governmental, you know, safeguarded practices than other industrialized countries. Like, uh, people in Europe look at us and they go, how do y'all even live this way? Well, yeah, I Um, mean, I think even the, the institutions you're talking about, so many of our museums and libraries began not as, like, federally funded institutions, but some rich guy wanted yeah, to get out of Carnegie's. paying taxes. The Carnegie's, the yeah. Mellons, you know, those. So it's been just as corrosive Yeah, what they've all done to the, what these corporations have done to public institutions. And the healthcare system in the U.S., I think, is especially vulnerable because it is already for profit. Yeah. It is not a public <clears throat> utility. It is not a public service. It's not a government service like the NHS in England. Um Little digression. I was just watching an interview with uh, uh, Ron Rob Rob Delaney about his new book, where he uh, talks about the death of his uh, two-year-old mm-hmm. who had a brain tumor. And they were living in England at the time because he was there shooting the sitcom catastrophe, and I think right. he still lives there. I think so. Yeah. Um, I think he settled there with his family, and they show a clip. Uh, in one of the interviews from Catastrophe, where they're talking about, the characters are talking about the royal family. And Rob Delaney's character said, you know what? You know, if they sold even one of the crown jewels, it could fund the NHS for 200 years. So I hope every royal gets rickets. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, back to the Sacklers. Mm. They exploited... Everything they could possibly exploit, and they got richer than any of us can imagine. Yeah, and, and created they, the opioid crisis. And then they laundered their money through the art world, and that is where Nan Golden comes in. Nan Golden is a legendary art photographer who began her work in the seventies, and who has become, you know, a big, big name in the art world uh, by photographing her friends and herself in raw, intimate, unseen moments that used to not be part of anyone's, uh, you know, uh, vantage point in the art world. Right. You know, museums weren't interested in your friends who are poor and who are drag queens and who are uh, perhaps on drugs. Like, you know, she has a long history, uh, and she talks about this very openly, long history of drug use and addictions and um and she became addicted to oxycontin after a surgery um 
And then she helped found a group called Pain, uh, people who are, you know, fighting against the the, the system of overprescription of opioid Over, medication. Yeah, and the the sort of demonization of drug use in this country, where exactly. it's treated as a crime rather than as a health issue or a moral issue. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing about the Sackler family. Their name was on a lot of wings in a lot of museums and a lot of universities. They they got these names on things by donating uh, uh, immense amounts of money and art. And to be clear, to you, permanent collections. You use the phrase laundering their money, which has a specific meaning. They're laundering their reputation. They're 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 trying to like they're they're presenting themselves as philanthropists first and foremost, yes, rather yes. than the vultures that they are. Yes. So the film is about Nan Golden's sort of fight to get something recognized by the art world because that's the world she can have an influence yeah, on. Yeah, where she like, has power. Nan Golden is not going to go to Congress and have anyone listen to her because they're going to look at her and someone like uh, 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 Mitch uh, McConnell, Ted Cruz or Mitch McConnell is going to call her a degenerate yeah. and not pay attention to her at all. They're going to treat her the way Jesse Helms treated all the people in ACT UP in the right. 80s. And they do talk about her experiences in ACT UP in the 80s. And uh, how that influenced Payne's model of, yes. of protest. <clears throat> so. They will listen to her in Congress, but they will listen to her at the Tate Gallery and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Because she put it on the line yeah. and she refused to give her work to exhibitions, to... Uh, uh, Permanent collections. Retrospectives to... Uh, she was like asking them to remove things from their permanent collection or not to show them. like, And they were like, oh no. <laughs> you need to have some kind of power to get that happen. And she just happens to have that reputational power and that uh, business power in the art world. And she was f- afraid that it would you know, torpedo her career because kind of all it takes, and this is why... Well, this is what I mean when I say money laundering through the art world, because it's not just reputations that get laundered. <laughs> All it takes is someone like that wicked Charles Saatchi mm. to buy up an artist's catalog as much as he can and then dump it and make the value of it plummet. So by dump it, you mean sell it for cheap? Yeah, get rid of it all. Um Especially if they want to, if they if he wants to be vindictive, like he and Damien Hurst <laughs> went through it years ago, um, and that's my that's my memory. Someone may correct me if I'm wrong on the details on that, but my memory is that he had a he had a Damien Hurst had a problem with Sachi hmm. back in the day. Um, so it is such a wonderful film. Because you really are here to live with Nan Golden for two hours. And she's a stunning person. She is wise and smart and tough and doesn't care what anyone thinks of her. She's compassionate and she is good. And she's had trouble in her life. So she has extra, you know, empathy for the people around her who have been through the same thing. Yeah, I mean the, and the movie. No empathy for rich bad people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean the movie is very much about her, but it's also 
you need to understand all of her life experiences and all of the stuff that she survived to understand why this fight is so personal to her. Right. And then you also have to sort of understand why she matters as an artist because that's the clout that she brings to even make this yeah. fight happen. Um, so yeah, I, I, I knew a little bit about her. I heard you talked to her to me about her. And I knew that she was, you know, used slides a lot, which I think also kind of makes her a montage artist in addition to a photographer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so it's a, it's, it's a very in, encapsulated personal journey through her career, but also a look at this really powerful statement that she's made this, this really um, effective activism that she's made happen with these museums. Do you remember one of my birthdays in the late nineties? I'm sure you don't where what you said to me was I'm, I don't have ideas for what to give you for your birthday. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do because you like things that I don't even know about. What if we just went to a bookstore and you bought a book that you wanted? And I said, that's a great idea. And we went to, I don't even remember what bookstore it was, but I bought the Nan Golden book, I'll Be Your Mirror. Oh, yeah. And we, we still own it. Uh, and what year, I don't know what year it was, 96, 97, 98, something we're, like We're that. still in Dallas. We were living in Dallas. And um, God, it's such a good book. It is such a beautiful book. I've loved her for 30 years. You know, I, I have been such an admirer and a fan uh, that seeing this film just, it, it, it moved me so immensely because I'm so invested in what she does for the world um, through her work. And y'all, watch this movie. Yeah. If it comes to your town, if it, if it, if it doesn't, I think it's going to eventually wind up on HBO. Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that means HBO Max, or what are they going to call it now? Max. Max. <laughs> Which is so stupid. <laughs> Put it you on know, your, like Cinemax. Put it on your <laughs> list, your refrigerator list of movies that, there you Dave, go. that Dave White told you to watch. Yes. No, I, 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 I very much endorse this movie. It's one of my favorites for this year. And I don't have the investment in Nan Golden up going into it that Dave did. So whether you are a fan of hers or don't really know who she is at all, either way, I think this is a movie that you'll get a lot out of. Then we watched... Christmas, bloody Christmas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Starring bear icon Abraham <laughs> Ben Ruby as a murderous robot Santa Claus. Yep. And who's the filmmaker? <laughs> Remind uh, me, please. I, I'm uh, I'm pulling it up. I just <laughs> forgot the name. Uh, Joe. Why am I blank? Uh, we just watched Bagos. Joe Bagos. Thank you. Talk about it, please. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, this is... Uh, it's funny, EW just did a piece because there's like three sort of Violent Santa movies out right now. Yes. there's. Have we talked about Violent we Night? We haven't talked about Violent Night yet, but we will for the next episode. Okay. okay. We'll get to it next time. Um, Violent Night, there's Christmas, Buddy Christmas, and then there's that movie, The Mean One, which is basically 
it's the Grinch, but they don't use any of the names, so they're able to turn it into a horror movie. Yeah. Anyway, um, so so Bloody Santa is having a moment. Uh, this is a, it's a film set on Christmas Eve in a very abandoned town. <laughs> um, <laughs> Everyone's home experiencing a holiday. I, I guess so. Yeah, with their loved ones. It, it, it's it, as, as the as the song from SNL would say, it's Christmas time for the Jews. For those who don't know, it was a TV Funhouse video. Darlene Love sang a song. It was about the idea that while all the Gentiles at her are at home enjoying Christmas, that uh, the Jewish people get to have fun on the town without people getting in their way. Uh, anyway, so this is a very, a very abandoned uh, town. Uh, a woman named Tori runs the local indie record store VHS rental place. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's... Uh, apparently they don't light the place with anything but like neon things and Christmas lights because yeah. it is murky dark. And there. this is a trend throughout <laughs> the entire film. Oh, the entire film inside uh, the store or a house or a bar, or, a bar <laughs> or out on the streets. Everything looks like it's lit by a a a a string of Christmas tree lights. Yeah. It's like, except for the police station, anytime you're indoors, it's like you're in a place where they sell black light posters. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that, this is them. a production design uh, choice. It's a choice. Yeah. And it got on my nerves real it's a, fast. It's a budget choice really. Because well, of the, course. The, the cheaper your movie is, the less you want people looking at the, <laughs> the grubby details yeah. of what you can't afford. You know, this is, this is a very quick and dirty kind of movie anyway. So she's hanging out with her employee slash potential love interest. Uh, they have a couple of friends who are, uh, having sex in the toy store, but in the toy store is a Santa robot, which you sort of hear on the news. The beginning is being recalled because mm -hmm. it's based on defective tech that was created by the defense department. And the robots are now sort of defaulting back into violent mode. Yeah. And that happens with this Santa robot played by, as you said, Abraham Ben Ruby, who goes on a spree and starts stabbing everybody. And that's kind of the plot. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty much the whole, well, he's movie. got an ax. He's got an ax. Later he gets a gun. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I was kind of bored after a while because as slasher movies go, like the first half hour is almost sort of this nonstop sub Kevin Smith chatter about like metal high albums, high fidelity people arguing about bands and movies. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then the killing starts and the killings are, I, I will say this, the killings are wet and gushy and practical. They are. Uh, which is certainly a plus. Um, they kill a they kill a child. They kill a child. <laughs> they do, I mean, mostly off camera, but it's like the, uh, any movie better that, than not. Any horror movie that that goes sort of balls out like that yeah. and does that. I, I, I admire them for committing you're thinking, to the okay, bits. Okay, this is this is a real horror film. Now you're going to axe murder a kid in this film. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't know. You were more into it than I was. Um, it's not a good movie. Um. It is cheap and shoddy, uh, but it is also committed to what it wants to be. Sure. And what it wants to be is dumb and gory and dumb. <laughs> That's two dumbs <laughs> for dumb dumb. <laughs> I here's what I admired: the practical uh, splattery murder X effects. Mm -hmm. The animatronic robot stuff, yeah, that happens late in the game, as the exterior of the Santa is sort of like melted away, 
And, 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 no, and it no longer has to be Abraham Ben Ruby. And it no longer has to be Abraham Ben Ruby. It has to be like a like an animatronic robot. Um, and by the way, uh, a, a little aside about the presence of Mr. Ben Ruby. Uh, ER royalty. Parker, Parker Lewis, Lewis can't, can't lose. lose. <laughs> um, this seems like a favor that he was doing to somebody because he has no dialogue. Uh, to speak of, there's a, a at the beginning he's doing a Santa robot voice, yeah, and he says like three things. Oh, 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 yeah, Mary, her, the kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, but otherwise he doesn't speak. Yeah, his entire face is mostly obscured by the hat and the the beard. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't know it was him, you'd have to, you would have to really be intimately connected to his eyes, <laughs> his facial structure, to know that it's him. Um. So it feels like, yeah, I'll be in your movie. I'll give you, I'll give you my name. Yeah, you know, to be in your film. Uh, one of the early victims is played by Jonah Ray of Mystery Science Theater, and yes. formerly of Maximum Fun. Yeah. Uh, so that was fun. I so I like uh, any. Listen, a horror movie is about people getting their heads chopped off, <laughs> and in this film, people get their heads chopped That's off. True. They get themselves split in half with axes, and the the gore is. Palpable and gooey and splattery, and that to me is always fun. So I've seen worse. The script is a, a complete mess. Uh, the as you said, the 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 third first thirty minutes of just people arguing is it, there's there's no winner <laughs> in, in 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 the arguments and. You pointed out how they drop f bombs in, so indiscriminately. <laughs> the 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 f swear is in every sentence, sometimes twice. It's like twelve year olds who just learned it and like can't get enough. I've of it. never met anyone, <laughs> and I have a mouth like a like a like a trashy garbage, like person. a stevedore. You don't you won't hear it unless you subscribe to Linoleum Nights mm-hmm. on Patreon. The um. The, 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 it felt improvised that amount and, and with, with direction from, uh, Joe Vegas Vegas. to say, well, just say more F's. <laughs> we've already, we've got that R rating locked down just with the gore. Give so it why to me, not? Give it to me harder with more F's. Like I need, <laughs> like we're going to, we have a little, we're going to get a little tally at the, on the bottom of the screen. To, <laughs> It ain't good, but if this is what you like, you're gonna like it. I guess, yeah. You'll get what you came for. It is. It's cold and wet outside. That's for sure. Yes. There's a lot of fake snow, but they are really in the winter time. And, and there's a, and they have access to one block that they just keep driving up. And yes, it, it's like like the Stonewall movie. You know, <laughs> um, there there is a bit that I thought was kind of funny as a longtime sort of you know Hallmark watcher, yeah. where inside the toy store they have a quote unquote snow machine. And so they have to make the toy store fake snow look much fakier than the actual fake snow they're using outside to pass as real snow. Right. But the, what's outside is also soap suds. They just make they just do bigger, floofier soap suds in the toy store so that we know the difference. Right. Now this is in theaters right now. It is in it is opening in theaters Friday. Simultaneously and premiering on Shutter. On Shutter. So yeah. you could Enjoy it in either any, way, in any way you think. And yeah, I actually saw Violent Night last week and 
we're this this episode is packed, so we'll get to we'll get to it night. next week. Next week, um, Violent Night, a much better uh, yes film <laughs> about a Santa Claus that has to kill people, but David Harbor Santa Claus has a a, a reason. Uh, right, he's not just a malfunctioning robot. A malfunctioning robot, yeah. So uh, Christmas Bloody Christmas not on Manola Dargis's top ten. It list, is not, but EO was. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's not Eeyore, Dave. It's EO. Well, where do you think where do you think uh, Eeyore got his name from? From Captain EO? No, Eeyore no. from <laughs> from Winnie the Pooh. I know he uh, the 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 European version of what a he yeah. This movie's basically called Hee Haw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. The, 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 the American country music television show of the 1960s, Hee Haw, was uh, meant to sound like a donkey braying. Yes. And, and so is There's E-haw. an animated donkey at the beginning of the show, Hee Haw, mm-hmm. with a, like a yeah. hillbilly hat Straw on. hat. And, and they go, Hee Haw, Hee Haw. And so uh, EO is sort of the uh, onomatopoetic yeah. uh, version. It's like how in Spain dogs say, wow, wow. <laughs> right. So, you know, Eeyore... That's roughly right, but the, the connection. This so, is true, but you're implying that all donkeys are as depressed as Eeyore is, and I don't think that's true. No, Eeyore the donkey is special. Yes, he's a special donkey. He's my. He's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not depressed. I'm just pessimistic. He's your daemon. <laughs> so anyway, Eo uh, is from the Polish filmmaker uh, Jerzy Skolomowski. Yes. Uh, who's been around forever, making mm-hmm. all kinds of films. And uh, this is his latest. He's 84 years old. Wow. And it is about a donkey. It is. And it takes as its inspiration, get your linoleum knife bingo cards out. Because <laughs> I'm fixing to say the name of it again. My all-time favorite film, Ohasar Baltasar. Yes. That is the inspiration for this film. Yes, and clearly. because of that, I spent the past six months thinking, "Uh huh, huh. yeah, really? Mm-hmm. All right, show me what you got." <laughs> for for a comparison's sake, I have still not watched the new animated Christmas Carol on Netflix that uses the songs from the 1970s Scrooge because I just. I just, I'm just worried. You get a poop, you get a poop feeling about it, don't I you? I do. Yeah. That, well, you should. I watched. Have you seen the trailer? I saw the trailer, animated, which was not encouraging. That trailer for that new animated Christmas Carol makes me think. Nope. Oh no. Nope. No. But I I'm going to have to at some point. No, I will not. You don't have to do anything. No, I, I need, I need to. Well, I need let me to say know. it differently. I don't have to do it. No, I would never make you. But we did watch EO. So anyway, Ohasard Baltasar. Yes. Uh is a film from Robert Brisson about a uh, donkey that experiences the sufferings and cruelty of life. Yes. And it is a perfect movie. And so when you tell me that you are going to reimagine that, I think, the damn you am. No, you're not. Um but that is what Mr. Uh, Skolomowski has done. Yes. And it's great. It is. It is great. I'm, 
I'm surprised by myself. Like I'm, I sat there with my arms folded, mm. knowing that film critics I admire and respect have already said it's so really good. But I was still thinking, no, <laughs> no, no. Hashtag not my Balthazar. No. <laughs> uh, why don't you explain uh, what happens? Oh man! So we meet Eo when he is um, living in a circus. A circus. He's a performing donkey. There's a woman there who cares for him and treats him very tenderly. Yes, and he loves her. Yes. Yeah. He clearly they have a close relationship. She gives him carrot muffins, not just carrots. Yes. Although carrot. he does have a necklace of carrots that, that one gets to yeah. eat whenever he wants. She makes him carrot muffins, and he is so happy. And then a thing happens where I wasn't quite sure if they were happening at the same time or one was somehow leading the other, but there is animal rights protesters who are having a, a big demonstration to get the circus to stop using live animals. And, and they're served with like bankruptcy papers. And so all the animals get repossessed or yes. taken away or whatever. So I wasn't sure if like, so did they go bankrupt and then the animal rights activist showed up so it looked like they'd get credit for it <laughs> or what? I, the, we I don't, don't know. know. But it's, anyway. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a cacophony of European bureaucracy. Yes. And protest culture going on around the donkey. Nonetheless. A lot of things happen around this animal. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 the dude abides. Like yes. the, this is this is a this is a story about an indefatigable protagonist who, or in this case, played by six different donkeys, played by six different yeah. donkeys who handles whatever life throws its way. Um, anyway, the long and the short of it is, alongside the camels and the other animals, uh, Eo is packed onto a truck and driven away. First, he goes to live on this. Fancy horse farm. Yeah. Uh, where I guess I guess sometimes they have donkeys the way they have goats, just to yeah. sort of be companions. Yeah. And um there's some there's he gets the necklace of carrots when there's some sort of big like dedication ceremony. Right. So it's clearly some right. sort of like civic thing where like public money has gone into this place. Yeah. But anyway, so you see these beautiful horses and you know, they're all divas. You know, you, you, Eo is Eo is so chill, and the horses are also like the, high maintenance. The, sh the close-up shots of the donkey's face, anytime a horse is being gorgeous and free or groomed, yeah, <laughs> is is sort of like, yeah, yeah. You think you're so fancy. Yeah, it's like Parker Posey you, levels of side eye from you these effing, donkeys. You it's effing horse. <laughs> I'm here too. Yeah, I matter. Anyway, so while everybody is getting these two horses to breed and, it, and you know, uh, Eo takes the opportunity to, like, run with a cart and knock over a knock bunch of stuff. Over, yeah. And so then he gets sold off. And he's sent off to this farm with a lot of mud on it. <laughs> um, and he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be there. People he, are he, trying to take care of him, but they he won't participate. He, he has flashbacks to the girl in the circus. She comes by. She finds him one night, which I was like, wow, two owners later. You're really on it. Yeah. Uh, it gives him a carrot muffin for his birthday and rides off he kicks at the fence and it comes apart and he tries chasing after her but they're on a motorcycle and he doesn't catch up to her and he gets lost in a forest and he gets lost in a forest and it is this is for me like just the most breathtaking sequence in the film because he is not in his natural habitat because donkeys just don't live in the forest in the wild <laughs> but there is an element of tranquility there because even though he is lost, there are other animals around and, you know, they all seem to be like, oh, hey, you know, welcome. 
but here come the hunters. Right. And with their green laser lights in the night. And I don't know, hunters at night is a weird thing to me, but... Um, they get you, those night vision goggles. You get this... You get the idea of the film's juxtaposition of the intrusion of human beings into the habitats of animals and the lives of animals. Right. And how frightening that can be uh, for the animals in, the, in question. Yeah, but at the same time, I kind of feel like if the hunters didn't show up, wolves were going to eat EO. <laughs> maybe. I mean... That's, that, that, I, that seemed to be implied to me. Maybe I got that wrong. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I didn't notice the malevolence of the wolves, but in any case... <laughs> Uh, he makes it out of the forest. Yes. <laughs> anyway, he, he has further adventures involving... He winds up in Italy. <laughs> uh, soccer hooligans and... Um, yeah. Uh, the, the bad soccer hooligans. Uh, and then he winds up again in a... In, in a, another truck. In, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an animal rescue uh, hospital because the soccer hooligans are... Oh, right. The, they try to kill him. Yes, true. Um and eventually, he winds up on a in a in a luxurious uh, villa, an estate, owned by, and this jolted <laughs> you. Yes, I did not know she was in it. Uh, Isabel Huppert. Yes, comes to uh, lend her blessing to European art house cinema, <laughs> and well, he gets picked up on the road by this guy who is apparently Isabel Huppert's like wastrel stepson who's, who's also a priest who's a priest but he's yeah. also gambled away the family fortune yeah who she's also about to make out with yeah That's... there's a lot happening <laughs> Europe um through it all uh EO you know he suffers great abuse at the hands of some people and is taken shown uh, great care shown by great others. care uh, by others so and and you never see when the abusive stuff happens to him you don't see it yeah you you see that he winds up in a hospital where they're taking care of animals and rescuing them instead of putting them down healing them right um so it is very similar to Ohasar and Baltasar in that both of the donkeys they observe humanity up close and are quite often victims to humanity. Um, well, they're a litmus test, I think, for the humanity of those people. Like, yeah. whether they're being going to be treated kindly or whether they're going to be abused tells you what you need to know about those people. Stylistically, formally, this film has absolutely oh, yeah. nothing in common with Brisson's way of making films. <laughs> and Brisson's way of making films is his own who called him Mr. Fun? I forget, like was it Glenn, Glenn Kenny or somebody? Yeah, <laughs> he is. He is the anti-jazzy filmmaker. Yeah. So this this movie is far more uh, expressionistic, dreamlike, sometimes psychedelic, sometimes really funny. Um, this film is is a is a wilder, freer experience than anything you would ever get from Brisson. It also sort of attempts to get inside EO's head. Uh, and it does so to a degree uh, through very, you know, extremely intimate like uh, framing cinematography. GoPro kind of <laughs> the name of the uh the name of the uh, cinematographer is uh Michael Dimek. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else he has done. Um but the 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 the, the filmmaking aspect of this of this uh experience is one where you are 
sometimes in the moment and sometimes you are in a dream and sometimes you are in the imagination of the donkey. Um, you are uh, thrown around quite a bit in terms of atmosphere and color and textures on screen. You know, it's night, it's day, it's snowy, it's cold. It's a, a, a scene that's entirely writ, lit by, you know, red light. Um, you are getting an incredible variety of visual and sonic experience here. And I think what it comes down to and what this film does say in a very, in a way that is not like Balthasar, but getting to the same point is that, you know, your life, human being is connected to this life, all the animal lives around you. And the, the, the drifter, you know, uh, priest knows this because he confesses to EO. This is the closest we get to a Brisson moment mm. because at the beginning of Balthasar, the, the young kids are, are, are blessing him and like baptizing him. Um, here, the young priest con makes a confession to EO and he says, I have eaten many kilograms of meat and sometimes sausage that has been made from donkey. Yes. And EO just looks at him like, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> and so it is a film that is, it is meant to, you know, uh, uh, inspire you to think more about your connection to the world of non-human uh, yeah. animals. And I would say in that regard, I mean, I found it, Far more effective than, say, Andrea Arnold's Cow, which we talked about uh, earlier this year. I agree with you. I agree with you, yeah. You know, I think Gunda is sort of the, you know, I, I didn't love it as much as you did, but it is the, the gold standard of that kind of movie. If I'm going to compare this film to any film about an animal, it's going to be uh, Jean-Jacques Hannault's The Bear, mm. which is a film from the late 80s. Um, because you really... You, the, the, it's a little. It's about a little bear cub who is uh -huh. sort of experiencing the, the wild on his own, right? And and not anthropomorphized in it. No, 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 no. But you really get a little bear cub POV in that film, the same right. way you do here. And it has ex sequences that are just as you know dreamlike and psychedelic as as anything that you'll find here. Cool. Um, if you can find it, uh, the bear, you should definitely check it out because it's really wonderful. Um, and if I were going to compare a film to Ohosard Balthasar, it would be Todd Salons' Wiener Dog, <laughs> which you cannot convince me that Todd Salons wasn't thinking of Balthasar when he made Wiener Dog, which is about a little dachshund who suffers greatly in a way that's painful and harrowing to yeah. watch. It's 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 a it's not an it's not an ugly it's film. A, it's, it's not a harsh shit. film, but it's it's a. It's a it's a sad, sorrowful film. Uh, Jean Jacquinot's The Bear is currently streaming on Canopy. Oh, good. Peacock. Okay, cool. Tubi. Uh, don't go to Tubi. It's and the Roku Channel. Commercials on Tubi. They're a pain. No. If your library doesn't have Canopy and you don't want to pay for Peacock, Tubi's fine. There is Tubi. Uh, is there a, a physical DVD, Blu-ray of it anywhere? Uh, I'm wondering about that. I, that I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, EO, y'all. Real good. Um it uh it's currently playing in los angeles i assume it will make its way around the country to other art house 
uh, uh, cinemas eventually or soon. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and, and it's, it's getting year-end critical attention. It just got, didn't it get uh, international film from New York Film Critics? Maybe. I believe it did. It might have, yeah. I wasn't paying attention to that. Ooh. Much. Well. Well, I just don't care. <laughs> the only reason I care about L.A. Film Critics voting meeting is because it makes Jeff Wells so angry. <laughs> uh, yes, you can buy The Bear on DVD. Okay, cool. All right, now, uh, we're going to catch up on some... Oh, no, 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 we have one more new. Huh? One more new film to talk about. The Whale. The Whale, oh boy. From Darren Aronofsky. Yep. Uh, based on a play by, his name is Samuel Hunter? Is that his name? So. Um, I'm, that name has just been put into my memory, uh, I think, uh, because Guy, uh, our, our, our lovely... Uh, uh, Samuel Powell, D. Hunter. Samuel D. Based Hunter. on his own play. The lovely Guy Branham took his copy of the play The Whale on a European vacation with him. Yes. And, and the province another one to Provincetown. And the Provincetown. <laughs> and and gave it gave it a fun life. Yes. <laughs> while he the, was the, there. The, the, the character in the play and the he, film are not he, allowed. He put it on uh Instagram. Um anyway. So okay. There's so much to talk about here. Oof. The Whale is about a man, played by Brendan Fraser, yes. who is gay and who weighs about 600 pounds. Yes. And he has sort of entombed himself in his little apartment. In Boise. In Boise, Idaho, uh, for years uh, since the death of his boyfriend. Over the course of the film, we'll come to learn why the boyfriend died. And it's a tragic uh, story, and it caused Charlie is the name of Brendan yeah. Fraser's character. It caused Charlie uh, an immeasurable amount of grief, and we see in uh, old photographs of the two that Charlie was already a big fat guy. Yeah, not six hundred pounds, but a big fat guy, and. And the, 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 what we are to understand since that death is that he has decided to kill himself by eating himself to death. Yeah, by degrees. Meanwhile, he has an ex-wife, played by Samantha Morton, and he has a 17-year-old daughter, and... When the daughter was eight or nine, eight, he left the family, came out as gay, and got this boyfriend. Went out for the boyfriend. Yeah. He's also a teacher. He teaches college writing class on Zoom. He is too ashamed of his appearance to use his own camera while teaching this writing course. He's trying very hard to get his students to think about what they write and why they write and how, you know, people obfuscate what they really think and feel in the course of writing. They they write in presentational ways rather than personal ways. He desperately wants them to be honest. He wants them to be honest. He is obsessed with a poorly written clearly written by a, a, a person who's not good at writing, uh, essay about Moby Dick. Yes. 
and he and he finds it comforting to have that essay read to him or to read it out loud himself. In fact, the film begins with Charlie uh, sitting on his couch, furiously masturbating to gay porn, and at the point of orgasm has what is basically a mild heart attack, heart attack or something akin to a heart attack. At that same moment, a door-to-door evangelist walks in. A religious missionary. And, <laughs> played by Ty Simpkins. And, and this isn't funny, but it's just so strange the way it happens. Brendan Fraser's like, read this essay to me because it will soothe me and maybe I won't die of masturbating. Yeah. It's a Darren Aronofsky movie. Okay, so oh, that, boy, that's, howdy, isn't that's, that's, keep that in mind because that's why these things happen. And it's based on a play, so if you think we're ever leaving this grim apartment, you are wrong. You are not. We are not. Um, Hong Chao plays... Uh, his, his good friend, his, who's also a nurse, who yes. takes care of him. Yes. And over the course of the film, we learned that Charlie has uh, great compassion and care and, and, and takes great care and is, is full of empathy for literally everyone around him except for himself. Yeah. He is trying to kill himself. And food is the way he knows how to do this. Um, his interactions with all the people in his life, with his friend, the nurse, with the evangelist who keeps coming back, with his estranged daughter who hates him. Yeah, played by Sadie Sink of Stranger Things. Says hideous, cruel things to him constantly, as does his ex-wife. Yes, in Um, her one scene. Everyone in his orbit is someone he wants to help and be somebody to. He will not do this for himself. He will not give himself the same compassion and the same empathy that he and the same grace that he gives everyone else. So, and I say grace because there are religious themes in this film because it is a Darren, Darren Aronofsky movie. movie. So, Darren Aronofsky's tendency is to obsess over the destruction of the body. The wrestler. Uh, Mother. Black Swan. Black Swan. The Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. These are, this, is, this is an ongoing sort of concern of his. It was, I guess, inevitable that he would see fatness as another angle uh. toward this. Um, and... Because he has been show, he has shown himself to be obsessed with, uh, interested in the ways that people destroy their own bodies. He also manages to because he also directed Noah, by the way. Remember? Oh yeah, Rock Monsters uh, and and Tree of Life. No, no. not Tree of Life. Uh, that's a, that's a that's a that's a, a fount- the fountain. The fountain. Sorry, not Tree of the Life. Jizzing tree. Jizzing tree. <laughs> The the jizzing tree. It's a a picture book. By Shel Silverstein. (laughs) So anyway, his his other tendency is to, uh, you know, 
make spiritual analogs for what's going on with Pie. his characters. Uh, film Mother is 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 a book about you know the creation. Yes. Um, uh, sorry, Mother is a film about the, it's the creation myth. Right. And so he gets these two things swirling around, and it becomes quite often a histrionic mess. And that is exactly uh, what yeah. happens here. So, I, and or, I, I and sometimes I like Aronofsky movies. They do. I, me too. I, I'm not coming into I'm this. Re, I'm a big fan of Noah. And I think I really I, am. I think Mother is effectively nightmarish. That like, sink is braced. That sink is not braced. <laughs> and that movie gives you that same level of tension of this nightmare. That oh, you I was can't having a stop. panic attack watching Mother. Well, yeah, but yeah. like, but, but at least you felt something. Yeah. But yeah, this movie, however, this hot mess film does what Aronofsky does on the regular. Mm-hmm. Okay. But now we have to talk about fatness. Yes, we do. All right. So, because as I said, I think it was inevitable that he would eventually get to fatness. I suppose. <laughs> so, because every, listen, every time I go to the doctor, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell, I have told this story on the mic on some it, of, on one of the podcasts before, but I don't know which one it was. So I'm just going to tell it again. Okay. Um, In 2021, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And you could feel my doctor just breathing a sigh of relief that she was finally right. Because the year before, the 2019, uh, I didn't get a checkup in 2020. Guess why? Um, 2019, she said to me, it really stuns me that a man your age and your weight has such good numbers every time we do your blood. And I said, just lucky, I guess, <laughs> too chunky to be stressed. Or so, I don't know what I said to her, but I was like, I don't know why. Um, because at the time of my at the time of my type two diagnosis, I weighed three hundred and twenty pounds. I looked cute too, <laughs> and and over the course of, uh, but she she was just fixated fixated on that. Um, over the course of the past year and a half in addressing the type 2 diabetes, which I did with no medication, that was her decision. Uh, I lost 40 pounds. Um, and now I'm down 50 pounds. So I weigh 270 pounds now. And, and my, my diabetes is under control. Um, but my goal was not to lose weight. My goal was to control the diabetes. But every time a fat person goes to a doctor, and I've been fat my whole life. I had a period in my teens where I skinnied up a bit because yeah. I just got tall and <laughs> my body needed to catch up with the thickening process. And that, and that happened in my 20s again. And I became the robust persona you see today. <laughs> yeah, I had a brief skinny moment in my 20s just out of poverty mainly. Yeah, but that it exactly. <laughs> so anyway, every time a fat person goes to the doctor, no matter what you go to the doctor for, they talk about how fat you are. You had an eye infection. I had an once. eye infection in early uh, 2020 before the pandemic yeah. kicked in. And I went, to the, I went to the urgent care and she said, and this is a different doctor. Uh, different woman. And she said, we need to talk about you losing some weight. And I said, I'm not here for that. I have an eye infection and my eye isn't fat. So can we talk about my eye infection? 
And that was a real conversation that we had. Yeah, I and she it. said, okay. I said, tell me what's going to happen with this and what this is. And she said, well, you've got this, I can't remember what she called it, but she's like, here's some antibiotics. And she was first wanting yeah. to talk about me being fat. Because clearly you had no idea, and I was like, until a medical professional pointed it out to you. I didn't run to the e. I didn't run to urgent care urgently, <laughs> because I woke up this morning and thought, "OMG, how did I become? How did I become so fat?" <laughs> so That's the worst. Just yesterday, I was kind of skinny, but today I'm so fat. I've got food in my mouth right now. Um, so that's what happens to fat people in the world, and worse. Oh, yeah. Because you and me, we're the kind of fat that people look at and go, oh, you're not that big. Yeah. But we totally are. Sure. But what they really mean is, you're not on my 600-pound life yet. Right. And not fat people, that's their ultimate horror. Right. So when they when they are your friend and they see you and you're not yet on my 600-pound life, they look at you and they go, oh, but you're one of the good ones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. That's what they do. Yeah. Skinny people and or otherwise just not fat people, I'm not calling you out if you are my friend or you listen to this show and you adore us or whatever, we adore you back. Um, I'm not angry about any of this. I'm just watching the world. It's just the way things are. Yeah. People are this way. It's an observation. And and watching how people have responded to your weight loss oh, has been This is the next part, right? I have lost 50 pounds. Yeah. And people go, oh my God, you look so good. And if I know him well enough, I say, bitch, I look good at 320. <laughs> <laughs> you did. So it is really, really weird to, to, to live that way. Now, did Darren Aronofsky think about anything? Did think about any of this before he made this movie? I'm thinking no. Probably He not. did not. Because to him, this is an abstraction. Yeah. This is just the ultimate horror yeah. of being immobile, of being sweaty. Because here's the thing. As, 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 as lovely and nuanced and full of compassion as Brendan Fraser's performance is in this film, and he really does give a wonderful performance in this film, you feel for him. He's not at you fault. Weep, you weep for him in this film because you want him to be okay. The, the, the problem is that the aesthetics of his 600-poundness in this film are the usual fright aesthetics. He's immensely sweaty like the shirts are drenched mm. with sweat he eats by sh shoving food in his mouth chicken slobber it's like literal slobber drip dripping yeah. from his lips like more than jonathan groff in hamilton like <laughs> that level of like <laughs> blah, 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 blah. like i've just got so much saliva and it's just mm. dripping all over me um just crump food particles on his clothes like 
the jerking off moment at the yeah. beginning is so like you're it, oh it, my god kind of that's it, how the film opens yeah and you can't the thing is like you never i never stopped seeing brendan fraser in, in a fat suit uh, yeah it is he never some... becomes his character it never he never you never get lost in the thing you are watching an actor whose face you yeah. know and whose general body type you know you know like wearing these arms on top of his arms yeah. to make his fingers more sausagey yeah and you know with the 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 all the latex chins and all yeah. the stuff and it's just this, it's a costume it's not even makeup it's a costume yeah. and it's so distracting and so just it just it feels exploitative yeah yeah like Part of me wants to, to to judge this film on its intentions. And if I'm doing only that, I'm saying that this is a compassionate film about a man who is suffering. And, and it's a film about grief. Sure. It's not even about fatness. No. It's about grief. And... This but, could be a movie fatness, about a heroin addict. Yes. Who well, just... Who again, keeps... We, we that's true. That he made that one. You're right. Yeah. You already made that one. <laughs> This is a film that employs fatness as a vehicle for his suffering. Right. And in its usage of fatness, it is exploitation. Um, because it made, you know what it made me think of? The reality show Ruby. Do you remember that? Oh, I used to, I used to, I used to watch that show. Yes. Ruby, uh, her last name I think is Gettinger. Anyway, a woman in Savannah, Georgia, she weighed about 750 pounds, and there was a show on oxygen. Maybe. Was it oxygen? I think it was oxygen. Yeah, where it was a show about her very slowly, gently, intelligently losing weight because she wanted to. And about, you know, her friends and her mental health and, you know, all this stuff. And it was on for two or three seasons and then it was canceled. Um, and, you know, she's fine. Uh, she's still she's still fat. I, I checked out her Instagram the other day because I was like, where's Ruby? What happened to Ruby? But here's where I'm going with this. Ruby's presentation was never the, the slovenly thing that we think about right. when we think about a fat person, especially when we think about, uh, and I say we, I mean the world, not me. Because um, all my fat, all my fat people, we are sisters and brothers <laughs> out here. I don't care if you are down 50 pounds from 320 or at 600 or whatever. We are all connected. Um, the her presentation was always, no, no, y'all, I'm gorgeous. <laughs> and and I'm taking, I'm, I'm handling myself here. You know what I mean? Um, well, I, and so I'm, that is, that is the thing. That is a very short, shorthandy go-to thing. Oh, look at that poor broken person. They can't even keep food. He's not even in, trying. He's not even trying. They can't even keep, can't even keep food in his own mouth. And that's all he cares about is food in his mouth. And he can't even do that right yeah. Um. Yeah, this movie's a mess. And Hong I, Chow is good. Uh, Hong Chow is wonderful. Sadie Sink is good in a character that doesn't make any sense, or at least it, that doesn't make sense yeah. in terms of 
the way that other people perceive her actions at the end of the movie, you're like, I don't. No, she meant to be. Mean. I don't know that she, she meant to be meant, bad. Yeah, I, I think y'all are giving her way too much credit. Um, but yeah, this this movie is just the character that doesn't make sense is the is the the the, the missionary. The missionary. Yeah, because there's no reason for him to keep coming back. There's no reason for him to knock on the door in the first place. Like you don't know why. It's just nothing makes sense. It's yeah, nothing about nothing about that character makes sense. Um, yeah, see it if you want to i guess it's such a freak show and it, it, it it's is really it irritating. makes you feel sad and depressed when it's over because nothing good happens to anyone at all there's a there's a spiritual sort of uh, climax but again aronofsky's idea of a spiritual climax is this you know weird glowing white light transcendence that mm. that he that no one can explain right um, and did it even really? And happen? did it even really happen? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are go CEO like find find other movies out there that are better than this Subscribe one. Subscribe. There are lots of go them. follow guy on Instagram because yes. the journey that he takes the book on is far more valuable. And he has some great quotes in a New Yorker piece this week about the whale and fatness. Yeah. Um, uh, and I want to hear from him after he sees the movie because it opens tomorrow. Uh, he will be on Maximum Film when we review The Whale. This Sunday? Uh, I'm not sure when it drops, but okay. when we do our episode on The Whale, Guy is our guest. Perfect. Yeah. If you don't listen to us, listen to Guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, I, we caught up on some things. Yes. I caught up. We both caught up on Ticket to Paradise. Ugh. Starring George Clooney and Julia Roberts, who are great buddies in real life. And in this movie, they play a couple who are who long, hate each other. long divorced and who hate each other and do nothing but snipe and insult and argue anytime they get near each other. They have a, an adult daughter who is graduating from something. Yeah, it's, it's the movie that sure doesn't know the difference between college and law school. <laughs> they, they say she's graduating from college, but then she's going to automatically become a lawyer, which is a, a problem in the editing or the script. And if she was in like law that. school, then why does she live in a dorm? Yeah, they talk about it being four years of college, and boom, she's a lawyer. Th yeah. That makes no sense at all. Uh, they Played she, by Caitlin Deaver. She goes to Bali. She meets a dude. She wants to marry him immediately. So George Clooney and Julia Roberts, they fly to Bali because they want to convince her not to do it. Uh, they want to convince her to come home, be a lawyer, you know, uh, don't live in a country that they have to fly to to get to her. And... And don't you know, do you do the law thing you were supposed and to then do? The and then yeah, shenanigans happen. and the, I, I, the one thing I'll give this movie credit for, although again Julia Roberts did this better in My Best Friend's Wedding, is that our ostensible protagonists do terrible things. Yes, do terrible things to try and stop a wedding. Yeah, uh, and 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 get called out for it eventually, which yes. is like okay. So, I mean, at least they aren't... But then they get instantly forgiven. But so. then they get forgiven, and they, they fall in love with each other again over the course of so the... So it doesn't matter. Blah. Nothing matters. Yeah, it's... It, it. This is... I mean, even just as a star vehicle of you want to see these two actors you enjoy go to a tropical location... And you do want to see that. It's still like, tedious. All I wanted was some laughs 
And to look at Julia Roberts be real great on screen like she always is. Yeah. Um, and some sarongs. But the script is lifeless. Ugh. And there are no laughs no. at all. Worst thing about it is that it's clear, it's so clear that Julia Roberts and George Clooney adore each other and enjoy each other's company immensely. The press junket videos were more fun than the movie. Are lots of fun to watch. The Vanity Fair YouTube clip is a, a, so much more entertaining than this film. Yes. I want a tea with the dames. <laughs> there where, you go. Where those two and whoever else in their orbit hang out and just talk yeah. and have lunch together. That's what I want. Because they are, as celebrities, as movie stars, they are so appealing that there's a reason I suffered through this film in the hope that I would get the thing from them that I like getting, that I've been getting for 30 years from both of them, but I got none of it. So I'm irritated. It's it's annoying as, as heck. It, it does offer a plum roll uh, for Genevieve Lemon, who you may recall <laughs> as the star of Jane Campion's Sweetie, Sweetie, and who has worked nonstop ever since. I didn't recognize her. I didn't either. I yeah. had to read it later. I was like, oh my God, that was Sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, uh, I finally got caught up with the film Tar. Yes. From Todd Field, starring uh, Kate Blanchett, as renowned orchestral conductor Lydia Tarr, with an accent over the A. Yes. She is uh, an impeccably suited lesbian uh, who lives in Berlin with her wife, played by Nina Haas, and they have a child. And Lydia also has many classical music world protégés. Until she doesn't. Until one of them kills herself. And then Lydia's world begins to unravel because accusations begin piling up against her. And this is the slow, gorgeously shot story <laughs> of one very powerful classical musical classical music world uh artist unraveling well and, and she's not just like a big thing in the classical music world it, it is implied that she's a household name she is an egot after all so i think she's like her character is an egot you know and we're it, trying to figure out what she got the yeah we're for. dying to know like uh, she scored the emoji movie there you go <laughs> Uh, but you know, like, like you know, she's presented as a protege of Leonard Bernstein's, and she has a Leonard Bernstein level of fame. Yeah, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. So, like, even if people don't quite know who she is, they are in awe of her because she is this titan. She's Dudamel. More so, though. Do we think? Do I we... think. I think. I think Dudamel is not as much of a household name as Lydia. Well, Torres. he is in Los Angeles. Well, he, yeah, here, but you know. All right. Well. <laughs> um. So that's that two hour and forty five minute movie in a in a quick synopsis. What do you think about it? <laughs> um, I 
I, I've been kicking this around. I saw this is one of the movies that I saw before getting COVID. Like I was supposed to, I right. saw it before going to Venice, and then I didn't get to write about it. Right. Um, but I've been I've I've kicked around the notion, and again, I heard Guy Branham and Matt Rogers talk about this on Los Culturistas. Oh, okay. And I, haven't, the, I haven't listened to that yet. And you know, and brought up the idea of like, is this camp? And it, I mean, and, it, and it really kind of and that kind of and, and I was thinking, OK, so I'm not crazy because I was thinking about Valley of the Dolls a lot in this movie in terms of the disintegration of a powerful woman in the arts. Yeah. And not necessarily because of substance abuse. And in this case, not at all because of substance abuse, but because of hubris and arrogance. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So like I and then so watching bits of it today with you, I was like, this movie's kind of campy and kind of like it Lydia Tarr is such a monstrous creation in terms of not only just like the power that she wields over this very niche and and you know sort of dignified corner of the universe but in the way that she is so arrogant and so condescending and every conversation she gets into is one that she will dominate you know and that she will get what she wants she will manipulate people to get the outcome that she wants she you know and you and i have this very she manages situations yeah so that the outcome is is balanced in her favor yes yeah like there's a whole subplot where uh you know the you know she's recorded all the Mahler symphonies except for the fifth and so they're they're all getting ready for that yeah there's a there's a very important cello uh, uh, section of that symphony, the yeah. solo. The first cello chair thinks that she's going to be the shoe in to get that. However, there's this new visiting cellist who's who's playing with them, coming from like was it Russia? Yeah. And Lydia obviously has an eye on her, and you see this meeting in which Lydia sort of manipulates everybody into agreeing to uh, open it to auditions, right? Even though her agenda is clear that she wants to give the ro- the the part to the to the to the new cellist, and but she sets it up in a way in which the first cellist can't object, right? You know, so yeah. she is this sort of master of, of sort of like working the room and playing the you know do, doing the whole thing to get what she wants, yes. and you see her do this time and again over the course of the movie, and so by the time she does finally like, you know. As somebody pointed out, the movie opens, she's doing one of those New Yorker talks with Adam Gopnik, yep. who lists off her many, many accomplishments, including the EGOT. Yep. And it's like, with that kind of introduction, you know this character has nowhere to go but down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, you just see like the one, the the chipping away of the armor, of the of the reputation, of the foundation of everything that is Lydia Tarr until all is all that is left is the rubble. So, I think the the very intentional ambiguity narratively. Yeah. You know, uh, did she or didn't she? Who's right? Who's a victim? Who's who's the perpetrator? Who's the perpetrator? Like, did something really happen? Were these relationships that she had with these young women inappropriate? Inappropriate? Were they consensual? Does it matter? Like, was there... Was there a problem with, you know, this person or that person? And is there such a thing as a consensual relationship between somebody who is just getting started in this in this world and this other woman who dominates this world? Right. Um, and you know, these are 
questions that come up a lot now. And the film knows it because the film references the Me Too movement, yeah. even as it is a film that is a Me Too film. Right. So the intentional narrative ambiguity is meant to, I believe, make people have the kinds of debates that you and I were having about it this afternoon, where I, you said, oh, I think it's clearly painting her as the villain. And I said, I think it's a movie made for conservatives to get their, get their, you know, uh, uh, get themselves upset. Their cancel culture woke rocks yeah. off. See, 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 look, I told you what happens, you know, um, is there's a, there's a young uh, composer student at the beginning of the film who says that they identify as as uh, non-binary pangender, and uh, don't they don't they're not into Bach because because Bach was a misogynist. Yeah. Now you could make a whole documentary about that sentence, <laughs> right? Yeah. And Lydia is condescending to this character. But it kind of feels like the movie is too. Well, I, I think in that case, that maybe it's both of them. I, 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 I think the, the movie is not... So who's being taken seriously and who's not being taken seriously here? And that is why I think this film is... It refuses to commit to a perspective. It wants to give you kind of everything. Right. And let you haggle it out with your viewing companion after the film is over. And for me... That just feels like an empty exercise. It, I'm not it, interested it, in in playing a game of choose well, your own adventure. <laughs> what, what happened to these fictional characters? Well, let's decide after the fact. I mean, I, I think you know? I think that the movie is kind of offering the idea of like, yes, these young people have opinions that we can pick apart and have issues with, and and maybe find you know reductive or facile or whatever. But also, Lydia's response is also terrible. It is. Yes. <laughs> because she is so utterly condescending and and just steamrollers over these students until the only response is to leave the room. Um, that I think, I don't know, I don't think it's an either or necessarily. Um, but I do agree that the movie is ultimately kind of, you know, it, it's a lot of flash and dazzle, but doesn't really say anything. I think the film has a lot invested in the the beauty of her world because OMG the luxury digs. Well, yeah. She lives in the most gorgeously minimalist, luxuriously appointed, brutalist apartment in Berlin. Like, the walls are concrete, but they look like they're made out of cashmere. Like, it is. Her her furniture, the lamps, there's not a speck of dust or grime anywhere. Um, her outfits, her hair, like, these impeccably tailored suits that she wears, and... You kind of want what she's got. Well, I mean, yeah, it's and, inescapably aspirational, I suppose. And then when she loses it, first of all, the way she loses it at the end is, I laughed out loud because I thought, is this a dream? <laughs> <laughs> is this a dream sequence? No, no, no. It's really happening. happening. And finally, 
you know she's gone down the stony end when she has to go to her home, her home home, her childhood home, and it's just all wood paneling. <laughs> that's the that's the bottom. You hit bottom when you get to, when you have to go to the wood paneling house. Or finally, what you end up having to do is take a job at like a comic con in <laughs> Vietnam somewhere, which is the. This film is insulting to it, to billions of real people who, like who, anime, who experience life in a way that Lydia Tarr does not. You know, it is a very strange movie. It's a, I think it's a a a, a, a muddled mess. It is gorgeous to look at. Oh, do I want to live in that I, apartment? I mean, yeah, I think that part of why this movie isn't on her side is because the movie is so much about her obsession with appearances. Yes. And as opposed to being, you know, there are people who are sort of, and maybe, maybe there aren't, I don't know. There are people, I think there are people who are innately cool. There are people who spend all their time, you know, fussing over themselves so they can appear cool to the world. Yeah. You know, her, like, like me, for instance, yeah. you see these scenes where she's like putting out the outfits and putting down the album covers and like, what's her Mahler 5 cover going to look like? Right. What, are, what, are, what are the Bernstein albums, the Bernstein albums right. look like, you know? Yes. And, um, and, and when, and going back to her home, you realize how much of a creation, quote unquote, Lydia Tarr even is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how the fact that she's all surface and she's all like, you know, this self-created fiction. She's a walking press release, basically, you know, as opposed to, the, I, as opposed to the implication is a real artist who would embrace their roots and not hide from them and would be like a genuine thing, you know, because, you know, there's a whole confrontation with the wife about how she maneuvered her way into the position that she has right. by, again, working the room, playing relation, the angles. A and, relationship, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love uh, Melanie uh, uh, Laurent. Uh, sorry, no, sorry, no. sorry, 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 Noemi. Uh, Noemi, Noemi Merlot from yeah. uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The side eye and the high rolls <laughs> that you that she gives in this movie are impeccable. She could play EO. She could play. She, I, I guess. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I guess. Um, the. Uh, also, I think Nina Haas is really great. Yes, as as, as the wife. Um, there's a lot to like about watching this film. Kate Blanchett's performance is really nervy and weird. And, yeah, and oh, as there's, you said, it's, there's a scene where she intimidates a child. It is. Oh, that God, is one of my, my favorite, favorite moments. That's in my the movie favorite this moment. Year. Yeah, <laughs> she tells the little she tells the little girl who's bullying her daughter, "I'm gonna get you." And no one's gonna believe. And no one's you. gonna believe you. <laughs> I'm her father. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's weirdly entertaining. It, I, it's it's very uh, sort of. I think it, it's serious about itself, and I, I. Which is how camp works. Which is how camp works. <laughs> yes. Do you, can so, you imagine midnight shows of this with drag queens doing her? Someone has already. May I please read the tweet from last week? In a one-two punch of tweets, somebody. <laughs> All right. 
somebody tweets as Wendy Williams. And, and these, these two tweets made me miss Wendy Williams so much. <laughs> Someone tweeted, so clap if you've heard of Lydia Tarr. <laughs> now, if you've ever watched the Wendy Williams show, this is how she does these hot topics. She, clap if you know who this person is. If you it's know. not like an obvious bold-faced right. Kim Kardashian name. And then immediately the first, <laughs> first comment was someone yes-ending the tweet mm. and continuing in the voice of Wendy Williams. And she writes, apparently, quote, uh, parentheses, sips on tea, <laughs> Oh, it's too hot. I told Suzanne the water needs to be a little colder. Laughs. Well, apparently, Miss Lydia was caught in a bit of a hashtag me too. <laughs> See, I'm not a lesbian, so let me ask y'all, lesbos in the audience, is it the pants? Clap if it's the pants. I I was I I wept tears. See, reading that. That's how much of a household name Lydia Tarr is because you'll recall that Wendy Williams did not know who Marion Cotillard no, was. Yeah. <laughs> when it was rumored that she was like having an affair with Brad Pitt or whatever, she just kept referring to her as that Marion. <laughs> well, yeah, but that would be... Uh, and this is after she'd won an Academy Award. This would be this would be a person that, that Wendy would, would have had to... Suzanne would be... Norman would be telling sure. Wendy, Lydia Tarr is his famous conductor, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Like, that is how the dynamic of that show would have worked. Well, Norman would also tell her that she's an EGOT. And that she's an EGOT. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that she got it for scoring the Emoji for, movie. Really? <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't, I can't say that I, that this, I can't say that this is a good film, but I can say that I think you want to watch it. Yeah. It's a, because <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it wants to do something. I think what it wants to do is like start the, Pepsi conversation, which I don't <laughs> approve of, but I find fascinating when people, you know, because it's such a... It's a it's, movie you want to chew but not swallow. such a gorgeous looking film, and um, there's so much work that has gone into it. Yeah. You know, from all angles. You have to see, you have to see what Blanchett is doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, it is, you can't not you, you can't it. not watch her be this person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, those are the films we have discussed today <laughs> on Linoleum Knife, a podcast on, of the cinema. On our plus-size 600th episode. And before we get to letters, a quick reminder, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash linoleumknife. If you like this show, we've got other ones like it. Maybe you'll like them too. Starting for as little as a dollar a month, you get uh, extra stuff like Linoleum Knife Presents More Linoleum Knife, where we uh, take a focused discussion of one particular movie. LKTV, a podcast of the television, Linoleum Knife and Fork, a food podcast hosted by two film critics, and Linoleum Nights, uh, which we do live on Facebook and uh, swear a little. A lot. A lot. Yeah. And also club meetings and other cool stuff. So check it out. Ellen says, cozy alert. Mm. I just listened to the audiobook memoir Playing Under the Piano by Hugh Bonneville. Oh. You know. Lord, Lord Grantham. Lord Grantham. And the dad in Paddington. Yes. Totes, totes, <laughs> adorbs. <laughs> High praise indeed. Yeah. Uh, she says it's available at, via the LA Public Library. Okay. Thank cool. you. Thank you. Holly uh, says regarding Top Gun Maverick and warmongering, 
I interpreted, uh, perhaps generously, Maverick's resistance to the military higher-ups shrug at the possibility some of the pilots might die as a part of the mission and his dogged determination that they all live and return home as a sort of anti-military message, compounded by the drones versus people argument scene where Maverick is resisting the idea of soldiers being expendable and ultimately replaceable by robots. Of course, this is all pro-American military over the people they're killing, but perhaps not so warmongering at least, or at least somewhat questioning of the military youth pipeline. I felt like overall the film made up for a uh, lot of the 80s, 80s macho tone of the first film. Well, that's... I had not considered that possibility. You could also make the case that if he's that if he doesn't want drones to go and it's like, no, we need to put human beings in harm's way. <laughs> Uh, Grant says, Dear Alonzo and Dave, I watched Tis the Season oh, on cool. CNN. Thank you. And I loved seeing Alonzo. Oh, thank you. I especially loved his take on Miracle on 34th Street and Die Hard. Thank As you. the year winds down, I found that 2022 might be one of the best cinematic years of my lifetime. Wow. And I'm struggling to keep my list at a 10. You guys believe it's okay to do a top 20 or 25 in years like this where the great movies just keep coming? Yes. Oh, sure. You can do a list of any number of films Absolutely. you want. If you want to make a list, your list can be 10, 15, 20, 25. Richard Brody's list is 30 films. Yeah. You can make it the top 50 movies of the year. What do you want to do? I, do it. I've be done, free. There I've, are no rules. <laughs> Nothing matters. It's exactly, Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. I've done top 20s. I've done... I, I will always have a runners-up. Like, I'll give you my top right. 10, but I'll also have like... And I'm glad I saw these movies this year also, you know. Right. Uh, so yeah, do do what you like. Make it work for you. And by the way, if you guys missed Tis the Season on CNN, and maybe because you don't have cable, uh, you can buy it for three bucks on Prime Video. That's cheap. And it's a it's a it's a you know, how long is it with that commercials? Like, hundred minutes? Well, I don't know. Something like that. Maybe like eighty five. I don't know. Anyway, but check no, it out. It's worth watching just to see Alonzo look so cute in oh. his plaid shirt and cozy Brooks Brothers cardigan. Thank you. JCRT uh, it was the 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 Wendy Torrance, I believe, is the name of the, that plaid pattern. Um, yeah, no, it was fun to do, and I, I'm really happy with how it came out. And they 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 left me in it some, which is nice. So oh, they, they put you in it a lot. I was I was very, really I was happy about that. that. I was I remember when they called you to do it. This was early in the year. Yeah, and I was like, they're just gonna chop you out of it like they did the last time they put you in one of these things. And what's the point? What's the point of going there and spending all the time and answering all their questions and being smart and being cool and being adorable? And they're just going to like chop you out the minute they want to put, you know, uh, 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 Rami Malik in there to say, yeah, Jimmy Stewart. You know, like <laughs> that didn't happen. Though. And they didn't happen this year because you bowled them over well, with I, your goodness. Look, if, yes. I, if you're not going to use me in your Christmas movie special, when I ask, are you ever <laughs> going to use me? I just was concerned for you. No, I I appreciate that. And I was wrong. I'm happy to say that. It was, was wrong. I was very, very they pleased with how it, it all you, came you out. You got used a lot. Uh, let's see. What else? Oh, well. Uh, that's, that's it. Well, no. The bit what? of news that dropped this week. I guess, we, should we share it? What's news? Oh, yeah. Oh, big news. Yeah. Big news on the Alonzo Duralde breaking news front. Uh, I am uh, writing another book. Uh, it is called... And they Hol even asked him to do it. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
It's called Hollywood Pride. Uh, it is a TCM uh, running press book about the history of uh, queer cinema, mostly, you know, through a Hollywood viewpoint, but yeah. including some international titles as well, obviously, uh, from the dawn of the cinema to today. So that's going to be taking up my life for the first chunk of 2023 the next, uh, the um, next five months <laughs> yeah but uh but i'm very excited about it it's gonna be great it'll be coming out in may of 2024 so you know keep an eye out i'm sure we'll mention it once or twice between now and then yeah uh so yeah so that's coming up very excited about it i hope you all pick it up when it comes out i'm gonna be your baltasar of research <laughs> Uh, thank you all for listening please check out my other podcasts you can hear me on Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network uh, Breakfast All Day we're a YouTube show as well as a podcast and of course uh, I've been popping in once a week on Deck the Hallmark to talk about Netflix movies and we, we got a review of Spirited coming up and just sort of off Hallmark Lifetime stuff that we're talking about hey, um, go, hey go listen to me on deck the hallmark i talked yes about a, a royal corgi christmas you did indeed it's an abomination terrible movie but fun episode i'm also fixing to be uh either this weekend or next am i allowed to say this out loud i guess i am i'm gonna be on the film at 50 yes podcast that's right. i've already recorded my episode it's yeah. about the poseidon adventure yeah, there's actually, this is, a, look, it's, it's always my crazy time of year for podcasts, but Dave's but getting... suddenly, um, yeah. <laughs> Dave, and you and I are both fixing to be on All the, Things all Cozy, things cozy too, so yeah. we're, we're in a lot of places this month. You can hear, I, I, I'm on the Veterans of Culture Wars podcast, talking about the Hallmark Great American Family rift, uh, and I just... This episode, is the next, this is another list for you to write down all of our appearances. Yes, put it on the fridge. All of our appearances and I was on just, other podcasts. I was just on Christmas Clatter talking about um, classic black and white uh, Christmas movies. Um, you know, what can I say? Subscribe to this program for free on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. We will read it on the show. Um, you can also leave us positive feedback in the many places that we stream, including Spotify, Google Play, Apple Music, um, Stitcher, thelounge.com, CastBox, Podbean. Thank you, Blue, for our wonderful theme music. Uh, visit his page at bluebleu.bandcamp.com to see what else he is up to. Um, you can follow us on the social media at linoleumcast and drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com. And again, our Patreon is patreon.com slash linoleumcast. Thank you for this extra long episode. Thank you for being here with us for 600, 600. episodes. We were trying to make this a 600-minute episode, but we, <laughs> we fell short. Uh, we'll be back with... Five or ten minutes. We'll be, we'll be back with 600 more, but in the meantime... Maybe we'll be back with 600 more. I, I you know, believe, if we're lucky... I believe in us. If, if the world treats us right and life turns out the way we want it to, yeah. we'll be back for 600 more. That's Don't that's, jinx it by saying it's going to happen. I, okay, I have goals. <sighs> Goodbye.